Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Now let's get started with our story about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Long before the controversy generated by Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, a much more profound crisis and scandal enveloped the British monarchy and the House of Windsor. On December 11, 1936, King Edward VIII formally abdicated his throne as King of England. On that same evening, the former king, now officially known as the Duke of Windsor, addressed the British people via radio and in a dramatic statement attempted to explain exactly why he made such a momentous decision. Although the speech was filled with the usual obligatory praise and formal salutations, the former monarch summed up his resolve with a single memorable sentence that defined the rest of his life. I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. This woman was Wallace Warfield Simpson, an already divorced American socialite legally still married to another man. Technically, as King of England, King Edward was also the official head of the Church of England, which forbade marriage with a divorced spouse. Simpson's American divorce on the basis of emotional incompatibility was not even legally recognized in Great Britain, which accepted only adultery as a justifiable reason for divorce. This additionally complicated Edward's situation, any marriage of Simpson involving the king in a legally bigamous relationship, unthinkable in 1936. Although the Duke of Windsor still would have to jump through a few more legal hoops to marry Wallace, his abdication was the obligatory first step in what was initially publicly perceived as one of the great love stories of the 20th century. On June 3, 1937, at a French chateau, the Duke married Simpson, from then on officially designated as the Duchess of Windsor. Unfortunately, this union did not live up to its fairy tale potential. The underlying reasons for the abdication, the hostility and bitterness of the Windsors toward the former head of the dynasty and his wife, and the problematic political leanings of both the Duke and Duchess of Windsor ensured their permanent royal and national ostracism, resulting in an exile to a veritable gilded cage. The future Edward VIII, known within his immediate family by the nickname of David, was born on June 23, 1894. His father, George V, did not become the king until 1910, then anointing David, his eldest son, with the title of Prince of Wales. Next in the line of royal succession, David was educated as a cadet at the Royal Naval College, went on to Oxford, and also joined the Royal Navy, 
When war broke out in 1914, he was assigned to a safe but extremely tedious post at Allied headquarters in France. Although on paper Great Britain emerged victorious from the Great War, the cost in both casualties and expense was enormous. Across Europe, many royal dynasties were either rendered obsolete or even completely destroyed, including the ruling houses of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Imperial Russia, the latter most disturbing as the Romanovs were literally exterminated by the Bolsheviks. In light of changing attitudes towards the monarchy in general and the terrible sacrifice of the British people, it was felt that the youthful and charismatic Prince of Wales could help restore national pride in the still resolute British Empire. Dutifully, the prince spent much of the rest of the decade and the early 20s visiting every appropriate territory and colony. His mere presence anywhere, he went a media sensation. From his very first three-month visit to Canada, where crowds afforded him a reaction that bordered on hysteria, the reserved slight 25-year-old became a teenage heartthrob and the world's most eligible bachelor. He elicited the same reaction in the U.S., meeting with senators in Washington, D.C., presiding over a ticker tape parade in New York City, and stopping in San Diego before heading off to a similar reception in Australia and New Zealand. Before he completed his world tour, the prince visited 45 different countries, traversing 150,000 miles across destinations including Argentina, Nigeria, Japan, and India. By the mid-20s, his likeness was everywhere. His public appearances chronicled in movie house newsreels, the prince a regular staple of newspapers and gossip columns, a popular culture icon generating a reaction similar to that eventually garnered by Princess Diana. But behind the scenes, some fundamental cracks in this royal facade were already pronounced, many the result of David's own troubled and warped personality. As a child, he was raised by nannies and educated by tutors, some of whom were cruel and even physically abusive. As a teenager, he was singled out and harassed by his schoolmates, all aware of his special status, his slight five-foot-five-inch frame and shy personality not particularly intimidating. His father was a typically imperious 19th-century monarch, judgmental and usually critical, and his mother was utterly cold and stiff, the heir reaching early adulthood feeling isolated, depressed, completely bored by his current role and dreading his future as king, where such pomp and circumstance would become his entire focus. Additionally, David developed a taste for both the nightlife and brief relationships with women, regardless of their marital status. Remonstrated by his father for such undignified behavior, the prince decided that heading to the United States for an extended holiday might allow him to continue such antics. Once George got wind of his son's entourage's late-night outings, heavy drinking, and womanizing, he forbade any future forays to the U.S. The Prince of Wales also disappointed his parents and much of the British ruling class with his inability to officially identify and marry a suitable wife and future Queen of England. His father, George V, had followed the standard procedure of most 19th-century European dynasties and in his case, even more so. His grandmother, Queen Victoria, typically selected a consort for George's brother, Albert Victor.
As was frequently the case, the young lady, Mary of Teck, came from German nobility with relatives within the British royal family. Unfortunately, in January of 1892, shortly after the official announcement of the couple's engagement, Albert Victor died suddenly during a flu epidemic. Victoria then summoned George, currently serving in the Navy, and told him he was to quit the service and marry Mary. A year later, the wedding took place. Such arranged marriages were the rule, love and romance taking a back seat to diplomacy and national interest. That Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, or Alexandra, the wife of Tsar Nicholas II, were the grandchildren of Queen Victoria, was the deliberate result of such domestic machinations. As early as the age of 16, discussion concerning an appropriate mate for the Prince of Wales began. An obvious candidate, the daughter of Kaiser Wilhelm, 18-year-old Victoria Louisa, rejected him as too young. He received some additional leeway when George V issued a 1917 proclamation allowing royalty to marry a non-royal subject, the first time even the potential for a commoner to achieve such status became possible. This edict, at the height of World War I, also originated the term the House of Windsor, changing the dynasty name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, an attempt to obfuscate the British monarchy's German connection and to encourage future relationships outside of the German nobility. Subsequently, despite several unserious relationships that went nowhere, David then became heavily involved with Lady Rosemary Levison Gower, the daughter of the Duke and Duchess of Sutherland, quickly proposing. But for any number of typically petty reasons, George V and Queen Mary objected, a result that infuriated their son, probably more as a result of their interference as opposed to any true affection for Lady Levison Gower. Even participating in such a process was probably difficult enough for the shy, immature heir, and such parental intervention permanently and negatively influenced his perspective on the entire royal courtship tradition. His next long-term relationship was with a married woman, Frida Dudley Ward, which dragged on for some time, despite numerous serious conversations in which the prince was literally presented with a list of eligible members of various royal families and told to get on with it. The only effect these conversations brought about was for the prince to exchange one mistress for another, in this case the Viscountess Thelma Furness, the daughter of an American diplomat who was also working on her second marriage to the chairman of a shipping line. The prince didn't even bother concealing this relationship, appearing in public with the Viscountess always denying any impropriety, especially to his father, these denials only eliciting snickers from the gossipy British social elite. It was Thelma Furness who, at the family country home Borough Court in Leicestershire on January 10, 1931, fatefully introduced the Prince of Wales to Ernest and Wallace Warfield Simpson. Ernest was a shipping brokerage executive in the firm founded by his father, Wallace was a socialite. Both were working on their second marriage. Actually born Bessie Wallace Warfield on June 19, 1896, Wallace's parents came from prominent Maryland families. Unfortunately, Wallace's father died of tuberculosis only months after her birth, 
and her mother Alice's family had disowned her as a result of the marriage, probably because her daughter was conceived out of wedlock. The infant and her mother then were supported by her deceased husband's wealthy brother and her mother's sister, Bessie, until 1908 when Wallace's mother remarried. Her uncle paid for a prep school education, and Wallace was socially prominent and attractive enough to be designated as a Baltimore debutante, although the outbreak of World War I suspended such frivolity. Not wild about some of the suitors hanging around Wallace in Maryland, her mother decided it might be a good idea to send her to Pensacola, Florida, where her cousin Corrine was married to an officer who was the commander of the Naval Air Station in Pensacola. Also feeling that Wallace was competitively trying to get married, her mother figured that dropping her daughter into a brand new environment might slow Wallace down. Unfortunately, a naval air station was probably not a good location to minimize a female's interaction with the opposite sex. Wallace arrived in Pensacola in April of 1916. Within weeks, her mother received a letter announcing that Wallace had met the most fascinating aviator. This in the era where dashing figures like British ace Mick Manick and German Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, were perceived as the best and the brightest. After an eight-week courtship over the summer, Wallace dragged her dashing new beau back to Maryland so the extended family could get a look at him. 28-year-old Lieutenant Earl Winfield Spencer Jr. turned on the charm and even impressed Wallace's wealthy paternal uncle enough so that a formal engagement could proceed. On November 8, 1916, Wallace, aged 20, married her fascinating aviator. It didn't last. Her husband's frustration at confinement to the home front during wartime to organize the construction of naval bases, his moodiness, and most of all, heavy drinking, even in the context of the time period, precipitated the couple's first separation in 1921. Wallace's family accepted that unfortunate reality, but only if there was no divorce, an unprecedented occurrence in both families. Wallace agreed and after a romance with a suave Argentinian diplomat who dumped her by July of 1924, she was even willing to have another go with her husband, now stationed in Hong Kong. Predictably, that immediately went off the rails, and Wallace then spent an indeterminate amount of time traveling throughout China, eventually crashing in Peking with a friend, Catherine Rogers, and her exceedingly wealthy husband, Herman, so socially well-connected that FDR's mother was Herman's godmother. Exactly what Wallace Simpson did during this time period, and who she did it with, has been the subject of great speculation and greatly contributed to the lurid whispers that her detractors engaged in once the Duchess became a public figure. Her return to the USA also culminated with a mysterious stomach ailment that required surgery. Once recovered, and after a few months in Virginia, squaring away her divorce, she headed to New York, ostensibly to find employment. Unable or unwilling to even complete a secretarial course, she remained unemployed and broke. At a party thrown by another former schoolmate, Wallace met Ernest Simpson, wealthy, well-educated, and immediately attracted to her. Wallace, despite a rather plain appearance, was always charismatically witty, flirtatious, and conversationally interesting. 
That Simpson was married was of no consequence. As soon as Wallace's divorce was finalized, he proposed. Ernest and his then-wife, Dorothea, had a two-year-old daughter, but Simpson's wife was in poor health during this time period and unable to fend off someone as determined as Wallace. Ernest Simpson divorced Dorothea and married Wallace in a civil ceremony, July 21, 1928, the newlyweds subsequently relocating to London. While Simpson worked managing the London office of his shipping company, Wallace spent her time planning and throwing dinner parties for an ever-expanding group of Britain's social elite. Eventually, the Simpsons crossed paths with the Prince of Wales. This January 1931 interaction precipitated an elongated courtship that involved both the married Simpsons and the Prince of Wales. This type of arrangement was not unusual for the prince. Both of his previous mistresses were married while he openly consorted with them, and they spent time with him frequently at his royal country residence and estate known as Fort Belvedere. By 1933, the Simpsons were also spending weekends there as the guest of the Prince of Wales, with a very predictable result. By mid-1934, even British high society insiders were aghast at what the little man, as David was scornfully known as behind his back, had actually taken up with. When the royal family deliberately deleted the Simpsons from the royal guest list for the wedding of David's brother George in November of 1934, the Prince of Wales personally interceded to get them reinvited. Probably thinking that a good offense is the best defense, Wallace showed up in expensive jewelry and a tiara that certainly her husband could not afford and could have only been gifted by David. Outraged, King George V then personally barred the couple from any subsequent official royal events, but the relationship blatantly continued, with Wallace receiving cash and gifts, usually gems that today would be on the order of tens of millions of dollars. What was in it for Mr. Simpson, an Anglophile who literally renounced his American citizenship to become a British citizen? Ernest Simpson believed that once the Prince of Wales became the king, all sorts of prestigious titles and favors would be headed his way. He was also broke, Wallace and he spending every cent they could get their hands on, trying to live up to the highest standards of British society. No doubt the Prince of Wales was paying both of their expenses. Much of the negative reaction, especially from David's immediate family, stemmed from a fundamental question. What does he possibly see in her? Although not unattractive, certainly with her practically mannish figure and jutting jawline, Wallace was anything but a classic beauty. And despite her reputation as a wonderful hostess and an interesting and bright conversationalist, observers were puzzled as to what she could possibly talk about, having not so much as ever having a job, any job. And perhaps the most unpardonable of qualities was that she was not only a commoner, she was an American a divorced American, who would have to get another divorce before the Prince of Wales could even think of making her the queen. By God, it was enough to make the collective British aristocracy's heads explode. Maybe that was the point. Despite continued personal denials that Wallace and Ernest were nothing more than dear friends, British intelligence not only proved otherwise with 24-hour surveillance, they also documented that Wallace was actually seeing a third lover, a married man. 
These surveillance and background reports on Wallace particularly, read personally by the king and queen, as well as senior members of the government, indicated that Wallace Simpson might be everything from a hypnotist to a Nazi spy. Ultimately, the aging monarch became resigned and hoped for the best out loud, commenting, I pray to God my eldest son will never marry and have children, but also expected the worst, presciently stating in 1934 in a letter to Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin that, after I'm dead, the boy will ruin himself in 12 months. Actually, the Prince of Wales personally had no intention of even ascending the throne. He fully intended to discuss in advance the prospect of renouncing the position in favor of the prince next in line, his brother Albert, the Duke of York. But Edward understood that this would be a bombshell, especially to his sibling, who had difficulty speaking publicly without a stutter, and also was mentally unprepared for such a public obligation. As 1935 was a year-long celebration of the Silver Jubilee, 25 years of George V as the King of England, David continually hesitated to discuss his intention to abdicate, understanding the pall it would cast over the monarchy during such a positive interlude. At Christmas time, he again rationalized his lack of fortitude in not bringing up the matter with his father and his family as a result of the death of George V's favorite sister in early December, and the king experiencing some health issues believed to be not serious. The Prince of Wales assumed that as soon as the new year commenced, he would definitely raise the issue. He never got the chance. George V's chronic condition rapidly deteriorated, and on January 15, 1936, he took to his bed complaining of a cold. He gradually faded until he died on January 20th. David, also known as the Little Man, was now Edward VIII, whether he liked it or not. Initially, Edward was quite popular with the British public, which remained completely unaware of the dysfunction lurking beneath the surface. George V was literally 19th century in mentality and appearance, while the Western world had already experienced the Jazz Age. The new king was known to enjoy a drink, was a snappy dresser, and certainly fancied attractive women. Publicly, he mostly made a positive impact in his perceived desire to represent both the monarchy and country in a positive, dignified way. He also showed no hesitation in delving into expressing an opinion on foreign policy issues, especially as they related to the increasing tension with Germany and Italy, and even the possibility of another continental military conflict. This may have been refreshing to a British population that shared his very public attitude that another European war was unthinkable. Unfortunately, the public was not aware of some of the attitudes that shaped the monarch and Wallace Simpson's worldview. Privately, as early as 1933, the Prince of Wales candidly spoke with relatives within the former German royal family, including the grandson of the former Kaiser, who maintained that the Prince of Wales was quite pro-Hitler and said it was no business of Britain to interfere in Germany's internal affairs, either regarding the Jews or anything else, and added that dictators are very popular these days and that we might want one in England before long. Related to Germany by both marriage and birth, a fluent German speaker, an ardent anti-communist, anti-Semite, and racist, 
Edward VIII would be philosophically more aligned with Germany's political leaders than many members of his own government. His continued and publicly stated support for the policy of Anglo-German detente, even as the Prince of Wales, alarmed political leaders, including the Prime Minister, leading up to the abdication crisis, Stanley Baldwin, a realist concerning Hitler in Germany, and one of the many proponents of rearmament in the face of an inevitable military conflict. Extensive surveillance of Wallace Simpson, including the deliberate leaking of disinformation to Edward that eventually wound up in the hands of German ambassador Joachim von Ribbentrop as a result of the efforts of Wallace Simpson, demonstrated that the couple were sympathetic to the Nazi cause, and in Wallace's case, might even be an actual German agent. Ultimately, what rendered Edward VIII unsuitable to be the king was not primarily a moral issue, but a national security issue, in which both the king and queen might not act in the national interest in the event of a military conflict with Germany. Rumors that in 1936, Wallace Simpson even conducted a sexual relationship with von Ribbentrop, an allegation that originated with another German Windsor relative who fled Germany for the U.S. in 1934 and was interviewed by the FBI, have never been substantiated. But her ongoing interaction with the Nazi foreign minister is indisputable. As 1936 unfolded, the positions of all of the interested parties involving Edward's potential marriage to Wallace Simpson began to crystallize. Edward VIII's personality was one of the fundamental drivers that eventually led to abdication. Not particularly intelligent, and an individual who once stated that he never voluntarily read a book in his life, his letters to Wallace Simpson during this period indicated the mentality of a love-struck teenager as opposed to the sovereign of one of the world's most prominent nations. Edward adopted the nickname for he and Wallace of we, a combination of their two first initials. In one letter, he stated, quote, A boy is holding a girl so very tight in his arms tonight. He will miss her more tomorrow because he will have been away from her for some hours longer and cannot see her till weddy night. A girl knows that not anybody or anything can separate W.E., not even the stars, and that we belong to each other forever. We love each other more than life. So God bless we, unquote. For Wallace Simpson, the time period immediately following King George's death and Edward's royal ascension was the perfect culmination of her relentless attempts at social climbing that began in her Baltimore debutante days. She shared little of Edward's starry-eyed attitudes and was described by a London-based diplomat who interacted with her as having a physical demeanor similar to armor plate or some substance slightly harder than a diamond. And he sensed that behind closed doors, her personality was markedly different, was dispelled by Felipe Espil, the Argentinian Foreign Service official who was involved romantically with Wallace Simpson when she lived in Washington, D.C., the first serious relationship of Wallace's life. Espil ultimately had to literally flee back to Buenos Aires to end the relationship, his attempts at breaking up met with stalking, rage, and hysteria. He described Wallace as a very dominating creature, the most dominating woman I have met in my life. She has a quick temper. She demands a great deal. When a man finds himself under the spell of a woman like that, it can take years of his life to get away. I decided I couldn't live like that any longer. 
But by early 1936, Wallace had for her the perfect situation. She was the mistress of a completely infatuated king who enjoyed paying all of her considerable bills and showering her with all sorts of expensive gifts. Her already divorced, currently married status meant Edward couldn't possibly remain king and marry her. Like Edward VII before him, Wallace presumed that David would find some socially and politically acceptable official mate and keep Wallace on the side. Publicly, she could continue to maintain that she was married to the love of her life, Ernest Simpson. Unfortunately, Ernest also decided to embark on his own love affair with Mary Raffray, the woman who had introduced Ernest to Wallace in the first place. During 1936, this relationship became increasingly more obvious, and it was common knowledge that Wallace and Ernest were headed for divorce, a process that began in July. Edward met directly with Ernest Simpson to get specifics regarding his timing, the king explaining that his coronation was officially scheduled for May of 1937, and if Wallace was to participate as his legal wife, Ernest's divorce needed to proceed as quickly as possible. Based on this conversation, it was clear that Edward VIII still did not understand both the seriousness of potential opposition to his marriage to Wallace and that such opposition would doom any chance of Wallace becoming the queen. Personally, he felt that his great popularity with the general public would allow him to impose his choice on both the government and his relatives. Both he and Wallace believed that if Edward addressed the public by radio and informed them of the situation, a great groundswell would sweep aside the objections of government ministers, parliament, and even opposition from officials in Australia who made it clear that the country was ready to separate from the colonial union if Edward moved forward with the marriage. Edward got an inkling of the hostility over Wallace when Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin informed him that he needed official permission for such a national address, permission that Baldwin refused to grant. Things came to a head in mid-November when Baldwin also informed Edward that if he insisted on the marriage, the government would resign. Edward responded by threatening to abdicate if he was not allowed to marry Wallace Simpson. On November 16th, at a private dinner, he informed his mother, Queen Mary, of his intention, a revelation that shocked her, no one in the Windsor family really believing that Edward would seriously consider such a drastic course of action over a common American divorcee. His brothers, especially Albert, a.k.a. Bertie, next in line for the throne, were not only stunned, they were also angry, believing that the king was putting his own selfish desires over the national interest. As yet, the public had no knowledge of the impending crisis. On November 18th, Edward VIII visited a closed iron foundry in Wales, the recent closing of the mill forced many workers into unemployment, and Edward's public comment, these works brought these men here. Something must be done to get them back to work, while a noble sentiment created more controversy behind the closed doors of government. This comment was perceived as a statement of political opinion and intent, a line which the British monarchy was not supposed to cross. Edward's subsequent behavior indicated a certain disingenuity that suggested that his motivation may have been as much his unwillingness to serve as the king as it was his alleged profound love of Wallace Simpson. Throughout November and early December, his advisors and those who even supported his desire to both remain king and to marry Wallace Simpson counseled him to be patient. By British law, 
Wallace Simpson's divorce would not even be final until April of 1937. The prudent approach would be to wait for his planned May 1937 coronation, with some of his advisors believing that then he could marry Wallace in any case and ignore any opposition. To force the issue in late 1936 seemed deliberately contrived. Finally, on December 3rd, the British press broke the story, with Wallace portrayed negatively to the extent that she decided to leave the country and stay with her longtime friends Herman and Catherine Rogers at their chateau in the south of France. Although this spared Wallace from some of the uproar surrounding the situation, it isolated her from Edward and prevented immediate personal access to him, effectively marginalizing her from any input into the king's course of action. That evening, accompanied by a Scotland Yard detective and one of Edward's few friends, Lord Brownlow, Wallace left for France. The king's final words to her, I don't know how it's all going to end. It will be some time before we can be together again. You must wait for me no matter how long it takes. I shall never give you up. Only a few miles out of Fort Belvedere, Brownlow attempted to persuade Wallace to head for his manor house in Lincolnshire explaining that she might better influence the king if she could maintain some reasonable proximity. In actuality, this was a desperate attempt to keep Wallace Simpson involved, officials like Churchill understanding how persuasive she might be. But, after thinking it over, Wallace decided to head for France, believing that if she appeared to be involved in any final decisions, she would be blamed for any fallout. Two days later, she arrived at the Chateau, above the city of Caen, in southern France, the world press nipping at her heels. Any attempts to speak directly to the king were difficult, connections poor to the extent that the conversations consisted of Wallace yelling, Do not abdicate! Do nothing reckless! Listen to your friends! Although stopping short of actually completely disavowing any inclination to marry Edward VIII, Wallace Simpson did release a statement to the media offering to withdraw from her relationship with the king if this was felt to be an acceptable conclusion to the crisis. By then, Edward was no longer taking her calls, palming her off on his personal attorney, George Allen, who would only explain that the abdication was inexorably moving forward. Finally, Edward called her back and personally told her that the abdication was inevitable. Wallace Simpson's unromantic and blunt response, recorded by French secret police, was predictable. You goddamned fool! Inexplicably, Edward decided to give up his throne, allegedly over Wallace Simpson, without even involving her in the decision, or even formally asking her to marry him during this time period, or even subsequently. On December 11th, he proceeded with his famous speech, explaining his decision to abdicate allegedly over his relationship with Wallace Simpson. Even his subsequent departure from Britain was haphazard, Edward now officially the Duke of Windsor, winding up in an Austrian mansion owned by a Rothschild, a personal favor to Lord Brownlow. Because Wallace Simpson was still technically married, the Duke and Wallace would have to remain separated until the Simpson divorce was final. The international press ran wild with the story, the reaction mostly negative to both Edward and Wallace, the former king deemed irresponsible, and Wallace the culprit responsible for his ruin. Even those formerly socially close to Wallace Simpson found themselves ostracized by elite British society.
The level of fascination with Wallace was underlined when in 1936, Time magazine named her the first ever Woman of the Year. Her profile mostly uncomplimentary, with an emphasis on her acquisitiveness, noting that she helped Edward spend royally, imperially, wildly on yachts, furs, and gems, and asserting that the king was the last in a chain of men that Wallace used to fulfill her own ambitions. Within days, visitors to the former king at the Schloss Ensfeld in the vicinity of Vienna were surprised when instead of being confronted with a depressed and contrite former monarch, instead found a cheerful, buoyant, and optimistic individual relieved to be rid of the burden of such a high-profile responsibility. He could rationalize his behavior by placing the blame on a government and society that refused to allow him to marry whoever he wanted. All he had to do now was wait for April of 1937. Because Britain's strict divorce laws forbade Wallace and Edward from even living in the same country, Wallace was stuck with the Rogers Chateau. She had always been attracted to Herman Rogers, and he actually switched bedrooms to a room adjacent to Wallace's, supposedly in the event of an intruder. Catherine remained in their former bedroom on the first floor, a situation that only added to Wallace's hostess's eventual irritation with the situation. Typically, Wallace complained to her relatives about nearly every aspect of her residence, ranging from the decor to the kitchen sanitation. Initially mobbed by a throng of journalists waiting at the front gate, eventually after several weeks, the caravan moved on, although there wasn't much for Wallace to do other than sitting in the Chateau Garden and talking to the Duke of Windsor every evening at 7 p.m., the horrible connection making that a dreadful chore. Wallace and the Duke were not the only individuals counting down the days until they could be reunited. Kitty Rothschild eventually found the Duke of Windsor to be a burden who had little sense of the expense required to maintain his residence. She sent out discreet feelers to any of her well-heeled neighbors to see if they were interested in putting up the man now officially known again as David. She got no takers, the Duke already perceived as a social outcast to be shunned. His brother George VI didn't help matters. The former Edward VIII was methodically stripped of any of his honorary military and royal positions. While he was allowed to keep his royal highness title, Wallace, upon marrying the duke, would not be afforded the same privilege, only the official designation as the Duchess of Windsor. Her hosts also were becoming impatient with her presence and under the guise of selecting a more appropriate venue, an alternative to the Rogers Chateau was located. Charles Bedeau was a wealthy but controversial business consultant who popularized a method of work analysis that many industries used to attempt to speed up production. Consequently, Bedeau and his system were disliked by especially labor unions and social progressives. Bedeau owned the impressive Chateau de Condé, a home he renovated in 1930, adding an 18-hole golf course, tennis court, and gymnasium. Its Loire Valley location met with the approval of the British royal family, who had already nixed Wallace's interest in getting married at Cap d'Antibes along the French Riviera, a venue and location deemed too opulent. Despite official approval, George VI continued the process of isolating his brother, decreeing that any members of the royal family were officially banned from attending the Duke and Duchess's wedding. 
an announcement that could have also affected the attendance of any potential non-royal guests. Wallace and Edward publicly did not acknowledge these series of snubs, but privately they referred to the new king as the stuttering bastard, and Wallace refused to even refer to him as the king, instead calling him York from his former title as the Duke of York. Eventually, on May 3, 1937, Wallace Simpson's divorce became official. The Duke of Windsor immediately headed to France by train, thrilled by the prospect of reuniting with the woman he loved. Subsequent events and eyewitnesses indicated that Wallace was not so effusive, but resigned to accepting events that had forced them into a relationship that was dictated as much by circumstance as romance. Only days before the wedding, she privately told Herman Rogers that he was actually the love of her life, perhaps a last-ditch effort to escape a marriage that no longer interested her. How exactly Rogers responded is still unclear, but he did nothing to derail the nuptials. The event itself was a resounding anti-climax, with only 16 guests, many of the minor local dignitaries, in attendance and far from the extravaganza that Wallace Simpson initially would have planned and anticipated. Ironically, Herman Rogers gave Wallace away. Instead of a raucous celebration, the couple had tea on the terrace and posed for selected members of the media. Afterwards, they honeymooned at a remote Tyrolean villa where they contemplated how they would spend the rest of their lives. Charles Badeau had a suggestion that was immediately intriguing and possibly illustrative of one aspect of his enigmatic relationships. The businessman had supplanted Herman Rogers as Wallace's confidant and public spokesman and was not particularly close to David to begin with. Possibly because he was no longer of any immediate use, the Duke and Duchess instead agreed to travel to Germany on a trip organized by Badeau in conjunction with a German military adjutant. Even his limited exposure to Badeau allowed Rogers to deduce that the businessman was decidedly pro-Nazi, Badeau's views embraced by the Windsors. The Duke dismissed any of Rogers' concern, and the visit was publicly announced in early October, an 11-day trip. This surprising development had consequences for both the British and other European governments. With the Spanish Civil War in full swing, tension between Germany and other countries was already intensifying. The British political situation, problematic with Stanley Baldwin resigning in May of 1937 in favor of Neville Chamberlain. For the British royal family, the ex-kings hobnobbing with high-level officials of the Nazi government would serve as both an embarrassment and an additional transgression of British political interference and breach of protocol. Recognizing the opportunity for a momentous diplomatic coup, the Nazi government pulled out all of the stops. The Duke and Duchess were greeted on October 11th in Berlin and escorted by ministers like Robert Ley and the aforementioned von Ribbentrop. That evening, they dined with both Albert Speer and Josef Goebbels. Everywhere the couple went, they were treated with extreme deference, including Wallace Simpson, who was continually addressed as Your Royal Highness, a title she did not officially deserve, as well as the subsequent curtsies. Other meetings followed with Hermann Goering and even Hitler himself. Photos from this historic event splashed on front pages all over the world. Several times the couple engaged in the Nazi salute, behavior they would come to regret. To any members still part of her inner circle, Wallace maintained that they were merely tourists, and the Duke insisted that the visit was not official. Throughout this journey, 
British consular officials were instructed that they were not to meet or assist the couple in any official capacity. Subsequent to the German tour, Charles Badeau had arranged a similar visit to the United States, again ostensibly to observe labor and housing conditions as a form of research. This tour was scuttled after heated protests from labor unions and Jewish organizations objecting to the couple's fraternization with the German government. That the Nazi regime very publicly executed two German Communist Party officials a week after the Duke left only added to the uproar. Reluctantly, against the advice and heated demands of his wife, David gave in, canceling the trip. Wallace was especially angered, having believed that she would return to the U.S. as a media star. Now she was not only an outcast in Britain, but in her own country as well. With no diplomatic or professional responsibilities, the Windsors then turned to figuring out exactly where they wanted to live eventually settling upon the Chateau de la Croix, a large mansion-sized estate on the Cap d'Antibes. Initially, this was where Wallace had wanted to get married in May of 1938. They leased the property. Shortly thereafter, they began the process of ingratiating themselves with whatever local members of French and American high society would accept their dinner invitations, the Duchess spending most of her time planning these events. For a year and a half, life revolved around furnishing their new home and their socializing, events that always began with a formal introduction by servants of Wallace Simpson as Her Royal Highness. If the Duke and Duchess were living the lives of the idle rich, this was essentially on someone else's dime. At the time of his abdication, Edward VIII was receiving £25,000 annually, paid by the British government. A very focused financial discussion occurred during the abdication process, with Edward deliberately lowballing his assets and the Labour government refusing to continue to foot the bill. This left Edward to negotiate with his brother George VI, not only for an annual income, but for the purchase of Edward's interests in the Balmoral and Sandringham estates, an amount calculated to be approximately £300,000. This money was invested in government bonds, Edward receiving the interest on an annual basis, about £10,000, tax-free. George VI initially paid an additional amount to provide an annual income of £25,000. However, when the king eventually discovered that David actually had over a million pounds in assets, not the 90000 he initially claimed, much of this money that should have been returned after his abdication he renegotiated with David, getting his brother to agree to a total annual amount of about 21,000 pounds, inflation adjusted to 1.4 million pounds today. Because the Duke did not live in Britain, none of this money was taxed by the British government. The Duke and Duchess's banal existence was interrupted by the outbreak of the Second World War in September of 1939. They immediately evacuated to Great Britain, but the Duke was not assigned any position that meant he would stay in the country. George VI deliberately vetoed a position heading up the civil defense in Wales, leaving the only option a liaison position with the British military in France. By October, he was back in France with Wallace, accompanied by his equerry, Edward Metcalfe. The Duke busied himself by personally inspecting the various French military positions positioned near Germany and Belgium, his subsequent written reports ignored by the British military hierarchy. 
He and Wallace were considered serious security risks, especially in light of his ongoing relationship with Charles Badeau, most likely a Nazi agent. Initially, Wallace got involved with various French relief organizations, including the French Red Cross, but feeling marginalized and ignored. The Duke and Duchess eventually withdrew from any meaningful activity David typically found on some suburban Paris golf course. Upon the German invasion in May of 1940, the Windsors quickly fled Paris, first to their home in Cap d'Antibes, and then by truck and car stuffed with valuables and even their pet dogs to Madrid. The Duke's equerry, Edward Metcalf, despite serving David for many years and serving as his best man, received literally no notice of this departure and was left to fend for himself, eventually making it on his own to London. Although the British government felt it urgent to get the Duke back to British soil to prevent his interaction with German intelligence, even inadvertently, Windsor maintained that he would not return until he was notified what assignment was next for him. In the meantime, German intelligence secretly informed Berlin that the Duke was adamantly opposed to continuing the war, felt he could, if allowed, be able to negotiate a peaceful settlement, and even suggested that it might be a good thing for Germany to actually start bombing Britain to hasten such a negotiation. He also blamed the communists, Jews, and elements of the British Foreign Office for precipitating the war in the first place. Encouraged by Wallace, it was not a stretch to assume that the Windsors believed that part of the negotiation would consist of David reestablishing himself as the king, forcing his brother to abdicate. This fantasy eventually devolved into the Duke demanding that he and Wallace were officially received, if only briefly, by George VI and his wife, Queen Elizabeth, a meeting that would establish Wallace as an acknowledged member of the royal family. He was informed by Churchill that such a meeting was impossible and that he was to proceed to Lisbon on the double. He arrived on July 2nd, but instead of checking into a hotel, he and his wife allegedly on the advice of the management of the completely booked five-star Hotel Palacio, proceeded to a villa owned by Ricardo de Espiritu Santo y Silva, a prominent local banker, who was also a German agent. Initially, the British government was not alarmed, believing that the Duke would not be there for long. A solution as to exactly how to handle such a dangerously toxic security situation was also in the works. It was agreed that at the highest circles of the British government that both of the Windsors remaining anywhere in Europe or even Britain during wartime was an untenable situation, the British government hierarchy having been informed by British intelligence that Germany considered the Duke and Duchess to be great assets, with the possibility of establishing the former king as the head of an opposition government to undermine the British war effort. Although it was presented as a request Churchill's solution to this potentially embarrassing situation was to appoint the Duke of Windsor as the governor of the Bahamas. Although probably understanding the intent of such an appointment, the Duke accepted the position, but also attempted to drag out his stay in Portugal for as long as possible, announcing August 1st as the day he would sail for the Bahamas. He also wished to travel to the Caribbean via the U.S., a request that was rebuffed by both the United States and British governments. Stalling right up until the departure date, the Windsors were the subject of intrigues involving various individuals in German intelligence and the Spanish and Portuguese governments intending on enticing the couple to Spain, where they would either agree or be coerced into helping to force an armistice between Germany and Great Britain. 
Informed by Churchill that he was to leave Lisbon without any further delay, Edward vacillated, but ultimately decided to head for the Bahamas, even hinting to several individuals that if the situation changed, he was only 24 hours away. Understanding that any real chance of turning the Duke of Windsor into a means of peacefully ending Germany's conflict with Great Britain ended once the former king sailed for the Bahamas, the very next day Hitler ordered a major escalation of the war on the British Isles. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Traitor King by Andrew Loney, Wallace and Love by Andrew Morton, Seventeen Carnations by Andrew Morton. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>